Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. In prison, all you have is your word. If a man says, look, I'm going to kill you, in a prison situation, a situation like this, yes, it can happen, it can be done. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The very first story we did was about something called jury nullification. In the United States, it's the power juries have to let someone off the hook, not because they're innocent, but because they feel the punishment under the law doesn't fit the crime. Prosecutors don't like the fact that juries can take the law into their own hands, and judges often try to downplay it. But in many ways, the power of jury nullification lies at the heart of our system of common law. The law has to make sense. And like jury nullification, the story we bring you today explores another one of those strange areas where the law can sometimes subvert itself. It sounds abstract, but don't worry. Reporter Cheryl Brumley is going to take you into a world of cannibalism and cannabis, blizzards, and prison breaks. My name is Harry Jack Spakes, S-P-A-K-E-S. I go by Jack. In 1992, Harry Jack Spakes was serving out a burglary sentence in a prison near Amarillo, Texas. I was arrested for uh, allegedly stealing 30 packs of cigarettes and $90 in change out of a coin-operated vending machine. He did his time in a large dormitory with inmates who'd been convicted on similar charges. Then one night, something happened that would change everything for Spakes. On a Friday night, two officers came in, cussing and turned the light on and told me to, excuse me, pack my sh- I wondered, move me where or what? I haven't done anything. Spakes was transferred to a four-man maximum security dorm. No explanation was given. His new cellmates were still in their late teens, all convicted of capital murder. One inmate was in there for chopping up his girlfriend with a hatchet. Another one was in there for shooting a convenience store clerk for like three, four dollars. And the other one was there for burglarizing and killing a man and woman in their trailer and setting the trailer on fire. Spakes had reason to believe he was being set up, being placed with men like this. At his previous prison, he filed a grievance that got a corrections officer demoted. Jack heard through the inmate grapevine that the officer was looking for revenge. Jack has charges in Randall County, and I got friends there, and he won't come out of there alive. When an officer makes a threat like that, you know it's viable. He can accomplish it by bribing an inmate with cigarettes. Once the threat is made, you have to listen to it. Spakes believed this threat was now in action, but he tried to lie low and get along with his new cellmates. Then after a couple of weeks, his cellmates told him they planned to escape. They said, well, one of the deputies, a female deputy, has the keys to the back door and she brings the meals around to us. They wanted to grab her. The inmates had made a knife from a tin can top. Spake says they wanted to hold it to the guard's throat, steal her keys, and escape out the back door of the prison. And I said, no, you can't do that. They disagreed, and if Spakes didn't come with them, they'd kill him. They couldn't leave me behind. They were afraid that I would tell the control center that they were escaping. And now that he knew of the plan, his cellies were watching him. They were always there. You know, it's never dark, you're never alone, it's never quiet. Spakes faced an impossible choice. Break the law and bust out with these violent men, or ask a prison system he didn't trust to protect him. I didn't feel safe at all. Spakes chose to escape, but he figured he could convince his cellmates to try something less dangerous, 
and thus saved both his life and the guards. All that I could think about then was telling them, no, there's another way out. There's a safer way where nobody gets hurt. Spakes had once worked in construction. He came up with a plan to get out through the prison's ventilation system. Through the drop ceiling over to where the uh, air conditioning heating ducts were, pop the screws on the air conditioning heating duct and drop down into the, the boiler room. He knew the boiler room door to the outside, by law, had to remain unlocked to prevent people from getting trapped inside. It worked just like that. And as soon as we'd open the door to the alley, they took off running across the street and I went a different direction. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. Here Spakes had a choice. He knew under the law that he should turn himself in, but he was afraid to do that in this jurisdiction. It wouldn't do any good for me to go turn myself into the sheriff's right there because I thought, you know, this had been a setup. He decided to walk to the neighboring county. A blizzard came in that night. He walked for hours in the cold until he reached a church. He found a lady standing outside. I said, I need a drink of water, I need to use the phone. And uh, I went inside and got a drink and this gentleman came out and said, why well, is what I need? And I said, I'd like to make a phone call and call my attorney. And he said, oh, uh, all right, Jack, we know who you are. The man happened to be an off-duty police officer. He brought Spates back to the prison. Now he faced escape charges, a serious felony. Well, the jury came back and gave me 60 years. I didn't think that I really should have that. I was justified in committing an escape because it was the lesser of two evils. Should I die? Should I let them kill somebody? Uh, Spake spent day after day in the prison's law library. Surely the law had something to offer him. And it did. A little. Spakes came across something called the defense of necessity. In other words, I did this, but I'm not guilty. Why does the defense of necessity exist? This is Joshua Dresler, a professor of law at Ohio State University. He wrote about necessity in a casebook used by hundreds of law schools. It exists because there needs to be a place in the law to deal with extreme and rare situations where there really isn't any other defense available to be considered. Dressler says that necessity is not a popular defense in the U.S. because it almost never succeeds. But to understand why, you actually have to go back to a case that happened in England more than 100 years ago. Regina versus Dudley, Dudley and Stevens. And Edwin Stevens. This stone here is purely a memorial. And the right-hand side says Richard Parker was killed and eaten by Tom Dudley and Edwin Stevens to prevent starvation. That's Jim Brown, local historian in Southampton, England. He took me to a church cemetery, which has a memorial to Richard Parker. The stone is made of granite, laid down flat with big, bold print etched onto its surface. A set of fresh flowers lay in front. Regina versus Dudley and Stevens, 1884. The case overturned the folklore of the custom of the sea. It was 1884. There were four persons, Thomas Dudley, Edward Stevens, a third man by the name of Brooks, and a 17-year-old boy, Richard Parker, and they were the crew of an English yacht. 
The crew were on their way to Australia, but after nearly two months at sea, things took a turn for the worse. They had a terrible tropical storm, the stern was damaged, and the ship started to sink. They had to abandon ship. And they managed to get the ship's 13-foot dinghy over the side. And so the four of them were stranded at sea on a small dinghy. They had no water except for a little bit of rain that came. And except for a couple tins of turnips, they had nothing to eat. So basically, after three weeks, they were starving. They were in incredibly weakened condition with no water and food. And they had no reason to think that they were going to be rescued anytime soon. So they had to make a decision what to do. The three men discussed the idea that maybe one of the four of them should be sacrificed, killed, and then the others would eat the remains of that person in order to survive, hopefully, long enough to be rescued. Well, Mr. Brooks said no to the whole idea, but Dudley and Stevens decided to go ahead anyway, and they killed the 17-year-old boy, Richard Parker. Richard was the weakest of the four after drinking seawater just days before. They cut his throat, drank his blood, any moisture they could get, and they ate his liver and heart while it was still hot, cut it into strips. And that, that continued for the next five days. And then on the 29th of July, they were rescued with a, with a by boat, passing boat came across them, fortunately. After the rescue, Dudley was convinced that others would accept what happened. Cannibalism by stranded sailors is harsh, but not unheard of. Dudley, who was really the leader of the group, understood that sort of the custom in the, in the oceans, the maritime custom, was that in these kinds of situations, killing somebody, if necessary, uh, was acceptable. And so when they returned to land, he was very upfront about it and explained what had happened and was obviously very surprised when he and Stevens were charged with murder. They went on trial in December 1884. The publicity was huge on both sides of the Atlantic. In the end, the presiding judge, Lord Coleridge, ruled that the sanctity of life trumped all other concerns for survival. Dudley and Stevens were convicted of murder and sentenced to death. That decision basically suggests that there is no defense of necessity when a person kills an innocent individual. Even if it'll save five lives or a hundred lives, it won't matter. Although they lost in paper, Joshua Dresler says public support for them remained so high that their death sentences were eventually commuted to just six months imprisonment. Even the family of the victim, Richard Parker, sided with his killers. Historian Jim Brown is a distant relative of Parker's by marriage. He says the family struggled with the wording in the memorial. You've got two biblical quotations. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. From, from Job, chapter 13, verse 15. And Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Acts, chapter 7, verse 16. That last one, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, was put there at request of Richard's older brother because they had a lot of sympathy for those who ate him and killed him, actually, because it was almost the law of the sea, um, in the of necessity. Still, the judge felt otherwise, and it's his verdict that lives on in the United States today. 
the idea that Lord Coleridge expressed from England was just accepted as important wisdom in this country. And therefore, for the last couple of centuries, that has pretty much been followed uh, uh, here. Happily, we don't have many cases, of course, of this sort, but it remains part of the law. Dressler says it's almost impossible to argue in the U.S. that you had to commit murder. But necessity does come up from time to time in other cases. It's, it's a hard defense to win, but um, it's when a lawyer raises the necessity defense, they're basically raising it because there are no other options. There is no other defense available for them to turn to. Call it the Hail Mary defense. That's the position Gerald Ullman says he found himself in. Necessity allows you to, to violate the law. Ullman served as pro bono counsel in the 1990s for a group of marijuana cultivators, the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Collective. The group had grown and distributed medical marijuana legally in California until the federal government ordered them to stop. They refused on the grounds of medical necessity, arguing that marijuana made life bearable for clients with chronic conditions like AIDS, glaucoma, and cancer. The medical necessity is, is kind of based on the lesser of two evils. If you are confronted with a situation where you either obey the law and suffer serious consequences, illness and pain and death, or you violate the law. Jerry Ullman is no stranger to tough cases. He was a member of O.J. Simpson's so-called dream team. But he says arguing necessity before the Supreme Court? That was tough. The result was preordained. There's no way that they were going to permit this, regardless of what arguments we made. Still, it kept the cause alive a little bit longer. And maybe that's why necessity was also a popular argument on the part of some Vietnam War protesters charged with trespassing and other crimes. Again, here's Ohio State law professor Joshua Dresler. They would argue that, well, what I'm trying to do is stop a war, stop killing that's going on that we believe shouldn't happen, and that therefore I'm doing the lesser of two harms by trespassing nonviolently on property in order to prevent violence in Vietnam. And Usually, when those kind of cases occurred, judges would not even permit the jury to consider the defense of necessity. Uh, the argument being that trespassing on government property can't possibly stop a war, so you really can't be preventing harm in that particular way, and therefore you shouldn't be given the defense. So cannibals, cannabis growers, and activists all tried and failed with the necessity defense. But there is one place, at least in U.S. law, where it sometimes works. Prison escapes. There are many, many cases in this country over the last 20, 30, 40 years of prisoners who have fled prison because of what we'd like to call an intolerable prison condition. Back in Texas, Inmate Jack Spakes was serving an extra 60 years on his sentence for escape. But the necessity argument gave him hope. He'd run across a case from the 1970s, the People vs. Lover Camp, which set out five conditions for necessity to escape. One of the requirements is a prisoner is faced with a specific threat of death or substantial bodily injury in the immediate future. 
That's number one. Number two, there is no time for a complaint to the authorities or there exists a history of futile complaints which make any result from such complaints illusory. Spakes worked up an argument with his attorney. In court, though, the judges weren't sure whether he met the final condition. And number five, the person immediately reports to the proper authorities when he has attained a position of safety from the immediate threat. Spakes argued in return that the prison he escaped from was not a safe place. I felt that I was being set up because I was moved from a comfortable 15-man dorm thing to a four-man maximum security with young capital murder cases. My, my threat came from the inmates as well as the officers. And that's why I walked to the church, almost frozen, and asked if somebody could help me. His case made it up to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest court in the state, and not a place known for taking an inmate's side. In the end, the judges made a surprising ruling in Spake's favor. Jack Spakes is a a very lucky man, if you can talk about anybody having been in prison and having to deal with problems in prison ever being lucky. He's lucky in the sense that Texas's approach to this problem is a rare one. That if the prison condition was that bad, that he was in some sense justified in escaping, that he isn't required to automatically turn himself in, he can still claim the defense. Uh, and I know of, frankly, no other state in the, in the United States that takes that position. So uh, whether it will be followed in, in other states in the future, uh, whether they will look to Texas and say, well, if Texas is taking this position, maybe we should consider it, remains to be seen. Judges in the case weren't only thinking of Spakes' situation. They were also reviewing how lower courts had handled the necessity defense. In the end, the judges held that Texas courts actually have no business denying the necessity defense to any defendant, not Jack Spakes, nor anyone else brave enough to try it in the future. You know, it's a landmark decision in the state of Texas now, and I feel proud that uh, that I was able to put the pieces together and make a complete picture of the puzzle. Jack Spakes is now out of prison on parole, but he still goes back to talk with inmates about getting an education. And once, he was approached by one of the former cellmates who forced him to choose between escape or death. And he started crying, and he came to me and he hugged me, and he said that he's listened to me, and he was very sorry he couldn't testify. And he said, I am so glad I did, I did the things that you told me to do. I started studying the law. I'm just going to start doing, uh, getting an education. I told him the more you learn, the more you put in your head, they can't take it away from you. Get off the weights. The weights and all are going to keep you out of prison. But knowledge, there's something that can never be taken away from you. For Life of the Law, I'm Cheryl Brumley. This episode of Life of the Law was edited by Julia Barton with sound design and production by Caitlin Prest. Life of the Law is produced by Julia Barton, Mary Adkins, Katie Barnett, 
Shannon Heffernan, Caitlin Prest, Elisa Roth, Simone Siever, Jillian Weinberger, and Phil Wilt. Our music is by Matthew Darr, Kyle Kaplan, and Todd McDonald. Our funding comes from you, our listeners, and from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. Thanks also to the International Media Project, our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. If you'd like to make an individual donation to Life of the Law or are considering becoming a sponsor of our podcast, visit lifeofthelaw.org. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. Uh, Think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American married to a Colombian Mexican American and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvador and pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America. <laughs>